You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age. Welcome back to another episode of The Best Revenge. I'm Stephen Heiner, and with me today is Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us. Well, I'm always here. We are uh, doing part two of an episode on Rome. We've done one before, and we have a coming foundation event happening. Uh, actually, next month, Dr. Flamid, it's, it's, it'll be here. This episode will come out in September, and uh, we'll um, hopefully put be putting some tips into your hands that can be uh, put to use uh, the very next month. And uh, Dr. Fleming, both of, both of us ha- have been there. We, we shared our love um, for those who didn't know where my knowledge of Rome came from. I lived in Rome from January 2000 to April of 2000 as a student in what was then a, a sort of hostel. There were nuns living there in a convent, but as their number of nuns decreased, they had extra rooms and they rented it to our school I was attending Thomas More College at the time and I lived there right in the heart of Trastevere and we were done with classes every day at 12. Was this, so was, this got, was this on or just off the Via Garibaldi? You once showed me a place you would stay. Yes. Yeah. And it's turned into a really high-end hotel now. I think that the sisters got finished off unfortunately. World War II didn't finish them off but uh, Vatican II did. But um We've talked before about all of the do's and don'ts of of Rome. You've been there many more times than I have. I've probably been there four or five times since I lived there in in 2000 and recently earlier this year and and last year. And I've been with you before. And I've been with you um, when you've done an event for another organization at at the venue that you're talking about, uh, which is in – which is – on the top of the Janiculum Hill. We'll get we'll get to that. Uh, I suppose we should start at the beginning, Dr. Fleming. Leaving the United States, which I imagine most of the foundation participants will be coming from, and coming to Rome. What do you recommend, other than, let's say, an Alitalia direct flight from Chicago? Yeah, well, Alitalia doesn't fly direct. We, uh, it'd be nice to drive, but uh, so I, uh, one of our children showed me some wise guy friend of theirs who had plugged into MapQuest driving from, you know, Ohio to Paris. And MapQuest dutifully filed it with, but then it's at some point you see the, uh, the line of the map disappearing and it said start swimming. So, <laughs> so that's a problem. Uh, we are, um, we're going to, we prefer to fly direct. We'll get into that in a second, but it's, it, from Chicago, from most places in the United States, it is not easy to fly direct during most of the year, only in the late spring to the end of September. So we're leaving, uh, my wife and I are leaving the 29th of September. And so we have the next to the last, uh, direct flight on, uh, on United Airlines, uh, from, uh, Chicago to Rome. And on the way back, we're, we're uh, going to visit, uh, I think you might have met Michael Garavage, who does the typesetting for us and is helping us with our publication program. We're going to go visit him. He lives in the country in a village outside of Amsterdam. So we'll stay in, Am- in that area for a couple of days. And Amsterdam year-round has uh, direct flights on United from uh, to Chicago. So we get to fly directly uh, both ways, which is good. Yes. So why why is flying direct so important to you, Dr. Fleming? Well, 
you know, this is this is pretty low level, trivial travel information, but it can help. You know, I, I talk to a lot of people and say, oh, well, I don't care if I have to change two or three times if I can save money. And you often, by the way, you can't save money. Often the more legs there are, the more expensive it is. The problem is that each leg of a journey, it doesn't just double. It doesn't add new complications. It's geometrically or exponentially more more difficult because you figure the airline industry exists to mess up your life. You know, that they, they sit around with their computers trying to figure out how can I make the maximum number of people the most unhappy. And the more chances you give them by, uh, for example, if you could avoid it, never change airlines, you know, in mid-journey. And if you can't avoid that, at least stay in whichever alliance you're in. Because to go from the Star Alliance to the One World Alliance, this is like being a red ant trying to fit in with a black ant uh, colony. Uh, they're going to they're going to murder you. I mean, but even when even within an alliance, um, Aegean Air, which is a small Greek airline, is is fit is within the Star Alliance. So if you fly Lufthansa or United to uh, Frankfurt and then fly Aegean Air to Athens, it should be no problem, except that the Germans don't like the Greeks, at least don't respect them enough to, so that you can't check on bags, you have to recheck in when you go to Frankfurt. It's, you know, it's like you, 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 you've, uh, you, you, you've left the civilized universe of international travel and you've, you've gone back, you know, 50 years. Um, so there's a there's a good reason to keep things simple, and you know because the the airlines they don't always talk to each other. They don't they don't ho- they'll hold a plane for five people in the same system, but they won't hold the plane for uh, for strangers. So there and uh, every at every leg, you know, there's more waiting in line, more checking, more customs control, more more rude uh, German airport officials telling you what to do with yourself. It's not it's not a pleasant experience. So for up to uh, maybe $250, I will uh, spend extra money uh, and fly direct at some place. But often you, you simply can't. I was going to say, Dr. Lemmy, that's not an unreasonable amount, 250 And I don't think people realize with the changes in the hub system. So in the last 10 years, the Middle Eastern airlines have gained so much market share that there is a sizable portion of the world that's moving, let's say, from from Europe to Asia in any given day coming through the Middle East. I can tell you as someone who has flown Emirates to Australia from Europe that it is not a pleasant experience changing planes at 3 a.m. in Dubai. No. Not because the Dubai airport is terrible. It's it's sort of this world-class, incredibly squeaky clean facility. But you're going to have to go through security again because the Emiratis do not want to be blamed for a terrorist attack. So they are not going to accept the competence of your screening authorities. They are going to screen you again. So at around 2 a.m. when you land, you're going to get to go through another security check. And and then you might wait anywhere between two and six hours for your flight in a in, in what can only be described as Times Square on, t- on steroids. <laughs> so unless that. you have a lounge pass, which is one of the most valuable gifts you can give to yourself, yeah. uh, you are going to be stuck out there with uh, all the other cows. You know, Lufthansa, Lufthansa sometimes sells those things on a day, on a, uh, on, they'll have a bargain, a sale price, and it'll be $50 for, uh, for a lounge pass for the day. And that is absolutely worth it 
There's a program called Priority Pass, and you can join it for $99 a year. It's sometimes provided as a benefit on your credit card program, but basically it has access to a bunch of second-tier lounges, so it's not going to be the, the most amazing lounge ever, but uh, each time you go to a lounge, it just charges you $29, and you can stay as long as you'd like. So I would recommend, uh, if you are, as Dr. Fleming says, choose direct, but if you can't choose direct and you have a layover of more than two hours, go to a lounge, take a shower, and relax. Um, there's nothing quite like taking a shower on on long international legs. Yeah, and no, I think no. that's that is more available, Doctor Fleming. As you say, there are some direct flight possibilities. So we land in Rome. Yeah. Uh, do you normally take the train? Do you take a taxi? Do you take an Uber? How do you get to the hotel? When uh, when I'm on by when I'm on, when I'm on my own, depending, I'll take an either the fast direct train downtown to the Stazione Termini, or you could take a slower train with stops and get off in Trastevere. And if you're going to Trastevere or the or anywhere on that side of Rome, that makes sense. It's about half the money. It only takes about 10 more minutes, and you don't have to put up with the, with the pirate pirates and bandits who claim to be taxi drivers at the, uh, at the Termini <laughs> station. Um, you know, but when I'm with my wife, and especially, you know, she's had an injured leg for uh, uh, over a year now from uh, falling, and uh, so we're just going to take a taxi. But when you take a taxi from the Rome airport, be sure to take a Rome taxi, because uh, the airport is located in the town of Fiumicino, actually quite a nice little town, uh, but Fiumicino urban taxis can operate at the airport, and they are unregulated. They get to charge you whatever they feel like. Whereas the Rome taxis are, I think, restricted to, at this point, 48 euros anywhere within the Aurelian walls, uh, which is, you know, the, 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 any place you'll be going will be uh, there. It could be a little cheaper before you get there. I had a taxi driver once said, look, your hotel is a half block away inside the wall. If I drop you off here, you could save 10 euros. So I said I would walk. But yeah, so t- taking a taxi, especially after all that time you've spent in the air, especially if you've had to change planes, taking a taxi can often make sense. There are also, if you're staying at a major downtown hotel, the, there are shuttle buses that will take you for uh, uh, less than half of what the, uh, the taxi costs. I would add from from the millennial perspective, Dr. Fleming, that Uber is not competitive in this market. No, it is not. You you will end up charging, uh, your Uber is going to cost the same, if not more, oddly, than a taxi. Interesting. You only get the, what do they call it? What are they, the platinum level or what do do they call the The black, the black, the black car. The black car. And apparently what I understand has happened from people I've talked to and looked up, um, the Uber market in Rome is controlled exclusively by off-duty livery drivers. So they'll have a limo or you know, private car service, and they fill in with uh, when they don't have a, an appointment. They'll fill in by picking people up at the airport or driving them around. They're, they're very good. They're very competent drivers. It's very, very nice vehicles. But it, is, it ends up costing more. So, so what exactly is the point? 
The, the I think the the advantage for Uber might be if you are it's it's late it's yeah. let's say twelve in Trastevere and you just want to push a button and have a car show up that would be the advantage but coming in at the airport I would say it, it's it's not and uh, and as you say uh, after having been in the air so long it's a, a treat you can give yourself and and I remember I didn't know about the forty euro one uh, limit a few years ago and I I took a I was late to something and I took a, a taxi. And he he told me I think he said forty eight or fifty in Italian and I said tanto, and he and he like shrugged his shoulders like well that's that's your problem kid, um, but I was just I was just I had a bit of sticker shock but uh, surprisingly in these wa- ways uh, Italy's not expensive in in some ways but let's say in this particular aspect there is a little bit of cost. Well, also you know the. Uh... You know, I, I, I don't like it when people abuse the Italians for being dishonest because I've had many experiences whereby I left something very valuable, like a bag with camera, uh, $500, credit cards, things in a, in a restaurant. I once I did this in Pisa near the train station and I came back an hour later trying to figure out where I'd left it. And so I asked the guy at the, in this little cafe, no, he just shook his head. Then this woman came out. And she shook her head. No, I don't never seen you. Don't know what it is. And then she started laughing and handed me the bag. And and she wagged her finger at me and said, "You be more careful." <laughs> and uh, I once had an ice cream vendor in Rome who I'd given, I, I'd bought a bunch of ice cream cones. The cost was about nine thousand lira in those days. You know, about eight or nine dollars. And I gave him what turned out to be a hundred thousand lira, in other words, a hundred dollars. And I walked away figuring, you know, there was about fifty cents. Who cares? But in fact, <laughs> it was ninety dollars uh, worth mm-hmm. of worth of change. And he chased me down the street to give me the money. So I did. But on the other hand, I do make an exception for taxi drivers at the Termini station because I have had some extremely wild rides. You just just don't even want to look out the window the way they're driving. Because time is money as far as they're concerned. But secondly, they charge you what they feel like charging. I, I have been with people like two of my children and going to the same place in Trastevere. They were charged, you know, 35 euros. I was charged nine. Well, the difference is I can speak Italian and they can't. And, you know, so you, if you're, uh, next time I have to take a taxi from, uh, from that station, I think I'm going to walk you know, a block where there's a taxi stand that doesn't belong to the station because it's really, most people are criminal. Hmm. Well, I have a particular love for the neighborhood of the hotel that you're talking about. I mean, and, and for those who are unfamiliar uh, and maybe are young, younger as myself, the it was featured, uh, uh, The there's a fountain nearby this hotel and it was featured in the most recent Bond movie, Spectre. And you can, you have this beautiful view of Rome coming down from this hill. Is that the Fontanone outside uh, yes. near, near the uh, San Pietro in Monte Citorio? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So tell us a bit about this location, this hotel, and, and why uh, you want people to stay here as opposed to, let's say, in the quote-unquote middle of the action. Yeah. Well, there are, there are many advantages and some disadvantages. We're, up, we're on the uh, Janicolo, the Janiculan Hill, which is uh, w- within the Aurelian Walls built in the 4th century. But actually, this, this hotel, the Grand Hotel del Janicolo, a little bit grandiosely named. It's only a four-star hotel. 
It was a, uh, is, is right within the wall, just barely. Near, it's near the gate of San Pancrazio, which, which I forget, it was, which was an ancient gate of Rome, but now, of course, renamed for the saint whose church is nearby. Quite a, quite an interesting church that nobody ever visits. It actually has catacombs, for example. But, um, the, the hotel is quite nice. It had been a, a kind of a reception home or a, 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 a accommodation for visitors to the Vatican. The Janiculan Hill is quite lovely. It's an upper middle class sort of quasi suburb with, with houses. Some of them actually have lawns, something you never see in Rome. The American Academy is up there. And uh, all, uh, it, it is a very quiet, place uh, to be when uh, to be away from uh, the hustle and bustle. Say, if you could, if you're standing in front of the infamous Victor Emmanuel Monument right near the Roman, the, the capital of the Roman Forum, just hordes and hordes of third world tourists milling around and screaming and people pushing you into traffic, <laughs> doing the whole horror. And if you could snap your fingers, all of a sudden you're, uh, you're breathing this clean air on the Janicolo. You know, it's quiet. They're nice, you know, upper middle class people who are smiling and saying good morning. And uh, so it's really uh, a lovely, uh, a lovely retreat. This hotel, by the way, has a swimming pool. I've only been there before in January, so I, I think the pool closes October one, but I'm not sure. It depends partly on the weather, but it's really uh, it's it's a very quiet place to be after beating your brains out playing tourist all day. Indeed. And uh, what if people don't want to necessarily walk down the hill? Dr. Fleming. Well, the, uh, there are a lot of options. We'll talk about the walk uh, <laughs> in a minute. But um, there, first of all, a taxi, uh, especially walking up the hill, is tougher than walking down the hill. A, a taxi from, the, from, say, the Piazza Trilusa down by the river is about 8 or $9 for two people. So that's, that's pretty reasonable. But a bus is... There are two or three bus routes that go within a block or two of the hotel, and uh, and they can get you with one stop with no with with I'm sorry with no transfers you can get pretty much to any neighborhood you want to. I I don't I take a lot of buses in Rome, but I don't like transferring. I'd rather walk nine blocks than wait for a bus. But you know if you can cut a mile and a half or two miles off your trip. If you want to go to, say, St. Agnes outside the walls, you know, you, you, th there you have to take two buses. But, but normally you can get within less than a mile of where you're going by just taking one bus. And unless you're a cripple, uh, wh why do you want to be on a bus when you could be walking through the streets of Rome, getting lost and finding places you never dreamed existed? Indeed. Well, and I think, too, Dr. Fleming, when people think about how Rome is laid out. We talked about this in our last episode about Rome, but the being sighted near any of those places, let's say you are staying near the Colosseum or you're staying near, you're staying near that horrible white monument or you're staying near uh, Piazza Navona. Let's say you're staying near any of those central places. One, it's not going to be inexpensive to stay there. No. And secondly, 
you're going to go to those places anyway during the day. So Tristevere, uh gives you this uh, ability to somewhat be away from the action and look in and have a retreat in the afternoon and evening. And I find that to be useful. Yeah, I always find because I mainly stay on that on the on that side of the river, um, and I I always feel when I walk across the bridge and I'm back in Trastevere, whether I'm staying down there or up on the on the Janicolo, I always feel ah well I'm home now and things are quiet and you know it's true there are a lot uh, Trastevere is a lively district a lot of cl- a lot of uh, restaurants and shops, but it's still it it. it it breathes a different air. It's much more. Uh, it's much more Roman, much more everyday, and uh, it's partly because there are so few first-rate uh, historical uh, monuments from from antiquity. And so, yeah, it's it's quite a it's quite a nice thing. And when you go all the way up the hill, for example, if you go to the Bar Janicolo, right down, you know, a half block from the hotel, it's all neighborhood people. They're all sitting there outside in the warm weather, sipping a glass of wine or drinking coffee at the end of the day or first thing in the morning. And uh, the people who run the place are extremely nice. They're very friendly. They and you could sit, you could order sand. They have. They'll always have a rotating informal menu so if you don't feel like going out and having a big lunch you could just sit there and either inside or they have a sort of garden area outside it's really it's uh it's it, it it's a great way of getting away from roman tourism and leading a, a sort of normal roman life well and i don't want to i don't want to get too surgical here dr Fleming, but i was thinking as you cross the river which bridge do you do you like do you like to take Ponte Sisto? Do you like to cross using the hospital bridge, Ponte Palatino? You like to see uh, look yeah, at the I like to, ra- I, I, bridge. Depending of course where you're going. If you're going if you're heading toward uh if you're headed order, God uh, God help you, if you're headed to the Piazza Navona or some place like that, then you know, you then you can take either the Ponte Mazzini or you can you can there there are about three choices. I I like to walk through the back streets of Trastevere and take uh, and take the bridge over Tiber Island. That is the the uh, you know where there's uh, the ho- the hospital there, Saint San Bartolomeo, and uh, I find and then walk up there, walk up uh, past the theater of Marcellus, and uh, I like that walk a lot. So uh, if we're if we're thinking about getting away. So we are talking about the, the Janiculum being a retreat. Um, and you, it, let's say you want to, you want to get out yeah. where, where in, um, where in Tristevere do you like to hang out? Well, the, uh, first you've got to get down there, which is of course, there are about, <laughs> there's the long and winding road to, to quote Sir Paul McCartney, uh, of the Via Garibaldi that zigzags with every kind of switchback imaginable and, uh, and with rather bad traffic. So instead, there are steps and goat trails that are, are plainly marked that will get you down to uh, the Piazza San Cosimato. And that's a lovely little piazza. It's an open market six days a week. When uh, my wife and I had an apartment on the Viale Glorioso right nearby, which, by the way, very beautiful steps that come down the, the, the Viale, very easy to walk down if you're a semi-cripple. And, uh, and once you're there, there are so many uh, places around there because you're on the edge of, uh, of, the, uh, more, of the more tourist area of Trastevere. So it's actually just a quiet, 
neighborhood place where you can go and buy meat or fish, and there's a cheese store. There's also a bread store across the street, and lots of little uh, neighborhood uh, cafes and trattorie. If you go all the way down the, the Via Garibaldi, it ends uh, and right near the uh, the Porta Septimiana, the, 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 this, the so-called gate of Septimius Severus. I don't think he had anything to do with it. It's a medieval gate. Um, and you go across that and, and you'll end up on the Via Dorotea or Via Santa Dorotea. And uh, there is my, one of my favorite restaurants in, in all Rome, if not my favorite, Da Fabrizio. It's uh, one of the last really old-fashioned Roman restaurants. They make no concessions to... They're happy to have tourists come. It's not like they're snooty. But it's very... It's simple, hearty, in fact, sometimes too hearty Roman food. You know, lots of lots of heavy sausages, oxtails in a wine sauce, you know, lots lots of organ meat. But, I mean, they have, they have you know, re- regular... It- Italian dishes, but two-thirds to three-fourths of what they have there is, uh, is very local. The owner is, a, is what you imagine every Italian proprietor of a restaurant should be. He's, he's fat and jolly. He always embraces me and kisses me and calls me professore. And, uh, and, and the truth is, I, I, I send dozens of people there every year, and I just say, sell them. It's the, it's the American professor with the white beard who speaks Italian, uh, he said. And then they all say, oh, yes, oh, they remember you. And, they, and that, that's, a, that's a, a very nice uh, place to go. Uh, there are, uh, if you're eating out on the top, if you want to stay in, in the, on top of the Janicolo, the, uh, there are uh, some of the best, least expensive, or at least most, uh, what, the, what the Italians like to call the, 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 the cost quality ratio is very high up there. There are inexpensive restaurants like Il Focolare, middle price restaurants like Il Bascello dei Sardi, very expensive restaurant like Il Cortile, but they all are cheap compared to one mile away because in their neighborhood places, nobody staying near the Piazza Navona is going to take a taxi up there. You have to, you have to bid up there and know how good the restaurants are. And they're really, they're, they're, since there's only one hotel and maybe two B&Bs on, on the hill, uh, you're, you're, you're basically, you're eating with locals at local prices. Hmm. Well, I've eaten, I've taken, I need to take a constitutional now. Yeah. I mean, and we, let's, let's take, uh, what is that, Ponte Palatino, if you walk across to the Temple of Hercules, heading that way, yeah. what, would be, what would be a night, so we're leaving Tristevere, we're crossing the river, where would, where would we walk? Well, if you walk across, uh, as I say, you walk over to Tiber Island, there are two bridges, one going you know, to each side of the island, and the island is itself sort of charming to walk around. It's been built up since the, it's sort of, made extended and shored up. It's sort of in the shape of a boat as it was originally. The island has always been a place for healing because uh, the story is that uh, there was a plague in Rome and they decided they needed to go and bring get a relic of, of uh, Asclepius, 
the healer god, or hero, depending on some people thought he was merely a hero and the son of a god, others thought that at his death he was, he was taken up to Mount Olympus. And uh, while, the, while the Romans were there, a snake to, at, the, at the temple, I guess they went to Epidauros, a, um, a snake came swimming up to the boat and climbed on board. And a snake is the sign of the healer uh, because it's an earth spirit. And it stayed with them all the way across the sea. They go up the Tiber. And then when they got to Tiber Island, the snake swam ashore and made its home there. And so they figured, well, this, this is where the god lives. And so there has been, uh, there have been healing facilities there ever since, including a very good hospital right, right now. So it's sort of nice that the church has some, has some, uh, early Christian, uh, aspects to it. And however, you, you can walk across, you can go, as you say, there are, there's a set of, uh, er, very early Republican temples, like the, there is the, uh, a temple of Hercules. There is uh, a lot. There's a temple of Portunus. Uh, they, ha- um, they have one of the few round temples in uh, in Rome. It was thought to be a temple of Vesta, but there's only one Vesta temple, and that's in uh, in the Roman Forum. There's the amazing house of Crescentius, who was was a medieval uh, robber baron family who controlled the passage across the Tiber, and it's made out of all, all sorts of Roman ruins, so out of out of this spolia, old brickwork, inscriptions, columns, all sort of built in in this really. Uh, it's like something you'd expect a junk man to have put together. But you, there are scholars who think that this is significant because at the period at which it was built, you know, after Charlemagne, the the Rome was beginning to develop an idea that it's that it was still the the queen of the world, the caput mundi, the head of the world. And uh, they were celebrating their Roman traditions. So for a Roman aristocratic family trying to control the papacy, uh, as the Crescenti were, uh, the, this place is very interesting. Of course, then there's the, the, the so-called uh, Bocca della Verità, the, the, the mouth of truth, which was an old uh, sewer uh, manhole cover in the, in the old days because the Villabrum, uh, this swampy area in the, uh, at the end of the forum would wash down here and, uh, into, into the, the Tiber. So right there is the great church of Santa Maria in Cosmedin, which is a largely, uh, Eastern looking church. And it was used for, uh, it was used for Greek ambassadors and Greek merchants in the Middle Ages, and it still has all sorts of what we would think of as orthodox features, like, like uh, an iconostasis. It's got, you know, it's got this and, and uh, the 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 chancel with high walls around it, so that they could carry on some of the some of the liturgy in, in, in secret, or at least uh, without being uh, looked at. So it, it is a it's a lovely area to to uh, to visit. And San Giorgio and Velabro is right nearby, which the mafia blew up because they they were going to blow up uh, St. John Lateran, but there were too many guards around. So they said, oh, well, what the heck? And uh, and so they went and blew up San Giorgio. And why would they blow up a church? Well, it was to get even with the Christian Democrats, who they felt were their allies in Sicily, but a Christian Democratic government after some mafia terrorism was cracking down on them, so this was their way of flexing their muscles by uh, symbolically blowing up a church. No, no hard feelings against uh, the Catholic Church, of course, but this is business. 
Alas. Well, and I think what's where you've left us, uh, Dr. Fleming, let's say you, you come on to the Circus Maximus, which yeah. uh, it's just a nice walk. And to think about the, the history around that. You're doing a lot left. of excavation there, by the way, or recently yeah. in, the, in the, the, the circus. They've got all sorts of stuff they're digging up. So it's actually sort of pleasant. And of course, they hold concerts and athletic exhibitions still in there. And if you go to the end of it, of course, you're ending up at the, uh, at the Baths of Caracalla, one of the most stunning of the ancient monuments. I find it a hundred times more interesting than the Colosseum because usually if you go to the Baths of Caracalla, even, even though, uh, even though the Vatican ripped off all their, their great art treasures there, magnificent sculptures, it is still a great, it's an architectural marvel. And, uh, and it's, and it's, and it's quiet. You could just sort of walk around there. I've never been there when there were more than 10, 10 people, uh, walking around. Brand name of the Colosseum. So yes. <laughs> you have this, some of the appreciation at half the price and one third of the crowd, probably. You know, if somebody would tell a lie that uh, Christians were uh, sacrificed at the at the Baths of Caracalla, as by the way, they were not. There is no zero evidence of uh, Christians being forced to fight lions in the Colosseum. That was elsewhere. So the, even 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 the thing that gives the Colosseum. Such a, such a, such a clat is uh, <laughs> is actually a, a false legend. Well, you as as you say, come into the Circus Maximus. You can look left to the Palatine and all the treasures there. You turn right, and this is maybe if I'm with someone who's never been, which I, I've I've been in this situation actually a few more times than I've expected recently. Uh, I would probably turn right uh, at the middle of the circus and and head towards Santa Sabina. Uh, also tends to be quiet, and I think most people really love the keyhole trick uh, for St. Peter's. It's 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 a bit of an easy one, but uh, it's also peaceful, and I like that garden up there. The the, taken... the orange garden, yes, yes. We've taken some pictures up there as a group, uh, but uh, walk us walk us up that hill and tell us why someone might want to go to Santa Sabina or go do the cheesy keyhole picture. <laughs> Well, first of all, uh, Santa Sabina is one of the most magnificent old churches, at least harmed by the Baroque period in which uh, an imperial papacy started uh, started ruining church after church in, in Rome. Some of it was done up there, but then I, I you know, one, one of the things about uh, the great things that Pius IX did is he did try to strip away some of that in the uh, in the mid to late 19th century. But, uh, the, the walk up, it's a little bit steep. You can, you, and there's no public transportation except you can take a taxi anywhere, uh, to get up there. And, uh, Santa Sabina is a, uh, is a magnificent church, but it has outside it, there is, uh, a great, uh, orange, orange guard. I mean, orange tree after orange tree. And even in the winter, it's, it's, uh, the, the fruit is blooming and you get some of the most stunning views of Rome. You get it from there. And by the way, the, the up back to go back to the Janicola for a minute, there's a walk that goes from roughly the Porta San Pancrazio near the hotel we stay in. And there's a, uh, the passeggiata, the walk of the Janicolo, which goes largely through park areas. And you'll turn it, you'll sort of, it'll curve around. And all of a sudden, you're seeing all these wonderful Renaissance and Baroque churches from a distance across the Tiber. And, uh, you can play a game because if you're used to seeing these things at ground level, you don't even recognize what they are. I can never remember which church, you know, which church is which when I'm up there. Although I'm making a concerted effort 
effort uh, this time to be able to appear learned. But uh, that's those are I think those are two of the best places to get views: the Passeggiata and then over on Santa Sabina. And it's again so quiet up there. And as you if you take if you walk uh, down a, there's some sort of a side way of walking down. You walk by some old ruined houses, and you get this feeling of when it was part of the disabitato, the uninhabited uh, section of Rome that had been abandoned in the in the Middle Ages. You get this sense of this very quiet, ancient, almost ghost town feeling up there, which is not something you often get in Rome. We've flown on a direct flight. We've gotten to the hotel. We've gotten oriented to our neighborhood. We've come down and had a good meal. We've taken a walk and uh, walked off some of that very good meal. Anything else you'd like to talk about, Dr. Fleming? Well, uh, not much because the truth is that th- what I've just what we've talked about today would be like two or three days of visiting. I would say this that the mistake that people constantly make in going to see Rome, or for that matter, a less interesting city, such as you live in Paris, or, uh, although Paris is a wonderful town, I have, believe me, I have, you know, I, I, I love being there. But you make a mistake, you see, you look at a guidebook, and it's, a, a, say, take Fromers, and you'll say, what are the ten top things you've got to do in a three-day trip? And so you go through the motions, you know, you, you do what the guidebook tells you to do. You see what the guidebook tells you to see. And so you're, you're like some of these uh, nice Japanese tourists who have, have their friends take pictures of them taking pictures of them. Uh, you know, in front of, here's the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Here's a gondola in Venice. Here, what you have, and then they, they, they take movies and they show it to their friends who have the identical pictures back, back in Tokyo. So what I would think the, you want to do the opposite. Sure, you want to, you're going to want to go to the Spanish steps at some point. Although, funnily, I haven't, I don't think I've been there in about 15 years. But there are, you want to do all these tourist things once or twice. But you also just, you want to sort of get lost, get a general idea where you are and start seeing things as if, as if you're the first person who's ever been there. Sure, take your, take the blue guide with you or, or the Michelin guide, which are, those are, I think, the two, two best uh, overall guidebooks to the city of Rome. But find things that, that you like. What you like may not be what everybody else wants to see. And find your own little restaurant, find your own little bar, and maybe it'll turn out to be the most famous place in the world, but it's, that's not how you found it. You didn't find it by, uh, by Rick Steves telling you. And I, I, I really think that, um, I don't want to sound too smart. Rick, Steve, Rick Steves isn't going to tell you anything. <laughs> I was once, gosh, I was traveling on a train, getting on a, trying to get a train from, uh, Ferrara to, no, from, from, uh, Ravenna to Bologna, and the train line got blocked. And so, you know, I would so I, I talked to some American tourists about my age, and we rented a car together because they had to get to Bologna. They had, they had put together the most bizarre itinerary involving flying here, flying there. Take, you know, it was just a, a complete. They they wasted half their vacation taking these zigzag trips, and it, and of course they were Rick Steves aficionados. They had been to his seminars. They had, they they were dressed in the clothing he sells, and so they were asking my advice. And I said, you do realize with that fanny pack 
and those funny cargo trousers with all the pockets where the legs zip, you know, the lower legs zip off, you do realize that you are wearing a gigantic please rob me, please cheat me <laughs> sign. And not just please rob me, please rob me violently. <laughs> I mean, and they said, I don't know what you mean, Rick. St-. I said, look, Rick Steves is a millionaire. He can do what he wants to. But you should try to blend in and look unobtrusive. You know, you're upper middle class Americans. Why don't you dress like you're taking a, a, a Saturday afternoon at the country club? You know, you know, I'm not saying you have to do, do what I do, which is I always wear a jacket and tie. But, uh, you know, dress what they call business casual. Look, so that people will say, oh, look at those nice Americans. They're not all crazy slobs. And, but the other thing that Rick Steves will tell you to do is you, these are the 10 top things you've got to experience. You can't buy experience. You can't have it pre-manufactured the way an Eskimo mother chews up the whale blubber and spits it down her children's throat. Uh, th- th- this is not, this is not living life. This is just having a TV experience, uh, that's been all carefully prepared for you. And so, no, you don't have to see the Sistine Chapel, one of the most overrated places uh, in the world, because you go there and it's p- tourists screaming, and then every three minutes the guard claps his hands loudly saying, Silencio! And uh, it's, it's... Also, no, no flash yeah, to no the flash, Chinese. No flash. And then flash, 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 flash. Silencio, <laughs> no flash. It is not... And I'm okay. Admittedly, I am not Michelangelo's biggest fan. They, you know, he's a technically he's a brilliant painter and he's a he's a brilliant sculptor. But there are but this cult of certain famous artists like Leonardo and Michelangelo and Botticelli. It's 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 very destructive. It's subversive. Find painters that you happen to like. I mean, for example. Uh, I love some, 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 some minor painters from small towns or, or they're great painters like Perugino and Pintoricchio. Find them on your own. So what, see what, what appeals to you. Go to, find the little niche in a, in a, in a not very well known church. Or maybe it'll turn out to be world famous, but for you, it's not known. You know, churches, I think one of my, uh, next to Santa Maria, uh, uh, next to Santa Sabina, there's a Santa Maria Sopra Minerva. It's one of the most impressive churches in Rome, and they they deborroked it uh, about over a hundred years ago. So there's so much that you could do that you don't have to have it programmed. You don't have to say, "I'm going to spend a half day in Pompeii. I'm going to spend a day in the Vatican. I'm going to do this, or I'm going to go to St. John Lateran and spend all this time there." When they really the church has really loused that place up badly, whereas the baptistry there is one of the two or three most beautiful places in, in, in Rome. And I think, too, Dr. Fleming, it's a disservice. If you're going to spend all this money and come to, to a foreign country and, and get your passport stamped, don't rely on one person to tell you, here are the 10 things you need to do. Read some literature. Read some history. I mean, for me, I think... One of the things I was most looking forward to as a student was one, you know, was there going to be that island made up of wheat that Livy had told me about, yeah, right? Yeah. That they, they had they abandoned it, and then this island grew up as a result. And you know, asking my professors, is that the island? You yeah. know, <laughs> uh, having having that idea about Rome, not through a guidebook, because guidebooks cannot do for Rome what its history literature no. uh, can do and that makes it your Rome your Roman visit you know we Dr. Fleming can talk about what he likes I can talk about what I like but that's not really relevant 
insofar as you need to find out what you like. If you're really into Caravaggio, you're going to need to set aside time to go to San Luigi de Francesi and go see the calling of St. Matthew. If you're not, you don't need to do that. There's too much to do to rely on a top 10 or a top 100 or a top 1000 for that matter for, for Rome. Yeah, better. Yeah, better than some of the guidebooks. There are some, like Amanda Claridge has a pretty good book, the Oxford Guide to uh, to uh, Ancient Rome, and uh, there's a guy. There's a book. Uh, what's her name? Something Clark. She's. A, it's a book on the early Roman churches. You know, so it, it, in other words, it cuts out about the age of Charlemagne, and it's funny. So she'll she'll describe something, and then and then. You know, of course, the, the church gets rebuilt in the 12th century, which is what we're seeing now, and she'll just cut it off because she has a narrow, uh, a narrow focus. But yeah, you know, read the, read the, read the literature, read, read, you know, if you can read Livy, and uh, there's, and read Plutarch, and read Suetonius, there's, there, there's so much. I tell people to read, uh, the, the great, uh, the great Roman poet, uh, Belli. And a lot of people have the idea that Belli was very, uh, it was a, po- was an enemy of the Catholic Church. His statue is there in Trastevere, a wonderful, a wonderful, jolly statue of a middle class man with a top hat, obviously half, half tipsy. But, uh, he loved the church. He just was very well aware of its corruption. And, you know, he writes poems about, about lascivious cardinals trying to seduce young women. And yes, that's not very nice. But on the other hand, Pius IX made him papal censor. So what kind of, what kind of enemy of the church is a, is a, is a close confidant of, uh, of one of the great popes in, 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 in history, certainly one of the great reactionary popes. And, uh, there, it, Rome is, Rome has its own dialect. You know, if you, if you go there more than two or three times, and especially if you're going to hang out in Testaccio, which is a, a hill built up out of, out of potsherds and junk, uh, near the, near the, on the other side of the Aventine. If you walk, walk down the other side from Santa Sabina, you end up in Testaccio or in Trastevere. I, when I, I used to, I, I could only speak Florentine. And, uh, and so you t- meet these people in Trastevere, I, they would just, they would laugh. They, they understood every word I was saying because I talked like people on TV. But I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't get a word, I couldn't get a word out of them. And so you go to a, you even go to a restaurant like Dare Polaro. What the heck does Dare? Well, it's the, it's the, it's on the Largo del Polaro. But in the Roman dialect, all those dels uh, become dares. Or it's, you know, R and instead of Al. So, you know, learn a little, just learn a little so you can at least see the quaintness of some of the signs in the, in, in old Rome. And just, just pick it up, pick it up by naturally and, uh, and even read, I read a lot of, uh, junk Italian mystery fiction because it's, you know, you're, you're, instead of the mean streets of New York and Los Angeles, it's, it's the mean streets of ancient Rome. I, I would also argue against uh, if our if our listeners are still wondering about sneaking in to see the Sistine Chapel ceiling when when Dr. Fleming's not there uh, to, <laughs> to, to be aware of being let down yeah that I was uh, we have every day every year in mid-September we have something called the jour de patrimoine here which are the patrimony the days of patrimony in which many buildings and gardens are open to the public which are not normally open to the public and one of them was the Elysee Palace and 
as a royalist, I'm always happy to see stolen properties from the from the royal family. Uh, this is where the French president lives and works as the equivalent of the White House. Well, Dr. Fleming got up at 630, which is an ungodly time for French people to wake up on, on a Saturday and got in line. And five hours later, I was walking in through one of the side doors into the palace and it was a real letdown. Yeah. Um, and I, I tell people in a certain sense, one part of me wants to say, well, I'm glad I did it. <laughs> but the other part of me says, no, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> so you can tell yourself, well, you know, Dr. Fleming can have whatever opinion he wants, but I'm going to go check out that Sistine Chapel. It's going to be, I, I promise you, it's going to be what we told you. You're going to go in there. You have to be in and out of that. I somehow, when I was there as a student, I kind of sat in one of the back benches undetected and, and stayed for a while. But you have about three minutes in there with a bunch of other annoying Chinese tourists, and then you have to leave. And you stood in line for two hours for those three minutes. Yeah. So maybe it will be worth it to you, but you have the ability to look at the Sistine Chapel ceiling digitally. Yeah. As close up as you'd like from your own house, you're never going to get the ability to do that there. So there, I don't. You, you know, it's it's not it's not to denigrate the the art in question, but rather the experience. First of all, the anticipation is going to is going to ruin it, even if it turns out to be good. But you know, but just the the crowds, the rigmarole, the waiting. I was once. Um, I had a friend in Paris. He was a wonderful man. He was a one of a uh, highly decorated French uh, officer in World War II. He was uh, very high uh, in the. Uh, he was a flyer, and then he flew for the RAF uh, during the war, and then you know, he got the highest medals from both England and France. And he said, um, "I have a friend who's a German Baroness art critic, and she's doing a private tour for rich German bankers of of uh, Versailles. You know, all the secret apartments the tourists don't get to see. Do you want to go?" So I was with my uh, daughter, who was at about 14 years old, and so we got this wonderful, quiet tour for, uh, I guess, she, I think the, because there were one or two Frenchmen, she gave, she gave the presentation in French rather than German, thank goodness, and uh, it was wonderful. Or we, uh, a, fr uh, a friend of mine, Mary Ellen Sinan, who is a, a journalist in, in uh, England and Ireland, she said, you know, the, the, for the first time in 10 years, the Palazzo Farnese, which is the French embassy in Rome, and, you know, it's open tomorrow. You have to get a ticket. But uh, so we got up early. In fact, we took Professor Brownlow and his wife. And we went there, and it was really wonderful because it was just opening. You know, it was it was a it was the Farnese Palace before the French uh, got it for their embassy, and it's full of all this stuff the Farnese stole over the years, and then that the French stole, and it was but it was a relaxed, disorganized sort of uh, exhibition, and uh, and the, you know the the embassy was still carrying on all its its uh, regular business at the same time. So when you fall into things like that, where it's just sort of an accident. And you, you can sort of accept it as a blessing. This is mana from cultural mana. <laughs> that, uh, but you overplan something, and first of all, anticipation ruins it. And second of all, what, what do they call it? The uh, the Stendhal syndrome is that what the the term is? Where people um, Stendhal noted that people who go to Rome or Florence. They get uh, they get so overwhelmed after a while they start almost hallucinating because they 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 it's just too much beauty. Yes, I, I've heard this something like that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you wanna you wanna always when when you're getting to be frenzied, you know, like like uh, like a 
a middle-aged woman uh, on Macy's sale day just rushing from sale to sale and grabbing things and getting into fights. You, 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 what you want to do when you, when you, when you want to avoid being a culture vulture and just walk down a back alley, sit at a cafe, spend three hours smoking a cigar and drinking wine and doing nothing. Or in, 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 in our group, there's always people like, uh, Mark Beasley and Jim Easton and, and that, and in fact, they don't, they, they refuse. I remember one day in Siena, they wouldn't go into the, into the, uh, into the art gallery, into the painting museum because they wanted to sit outside and smoke and drink. Well, you know, that sounds terrible, but the fact is sometimes you've had enough and you just want to relax and have a good time and be a human being. And that's, and that's where the tourist mentality will, prevent you from having a good time well and and with with uh with beasley and easton you've got the uh, tobacco and alcohol from the alcohol tobacco and firearms trilogy so <laughs> yeah you can't we'll bring in on the bring, plane yeah. just invite a carbonieri for a drink you've got all three <laughs> Well, we don't want to keep people all day. No. I mean, I think we've talked about a lot. Uh, just as a housekeeping issue, some people might say winter school, what they're used to with, with your trips with another organization, was probably January, December. And this is in October. Why the switch? And do you think this is – well, I can't ask you if you think this is a negative switch. Obviously, there are pros and cons. Yeah. But uh, the big pro, walk us the through, big walk pro us is the weather. That. The weather's much warmer. You can walk around without having to worry about wearing an overcoat and uh, extra sweaters. The average high in Rome in the first half of October is the mid to low seventies, and the average low is in the mid sixties. So it, the weather's very pleasant. The downside is it's more expensive. And there are more people, although nothing like the crowds you face in June, July, August. I mean, I, I simply, I, I won't, I don't refuse to go to Italy in the summer if I, if somebody asks me to give a lecture, but I, I, I won't go, I won't go to Rome. You know, that, that is, uh, that, to me, that's impossible. Although, uh, Jim Easton went to Rome, his, his family made him go there on last uh, July, and they stayed up on the Janicolo, and he said, you know, it re- if you've never before appreciated how nice and quiet it is up there, you really appreciate it in the summer, because it's even a little cooler. So mm-hmm. uh, so there are advantages. I don't know. Um, I, li- I liked our winter school program because it uh, you, you, you really, you're, you're in... You, you don't see many people in Rome, fewer even in Athens. The trouble is, how many cities uh, will the high be in the 50s in Europe in January? And the answer is not many. And if you go to, we did Florence uh, and we did Pisa that way, and sometimes the high is, you know, 45. And people, uh, that th- doesn't bother me, you know, coming out of, Northern Illinois, uh, where the high is, you know, minus five on the same day, 45 seems very nice. So the, if you want, but if we wanted to do something in France, which, which I'm thinking of, uh, most of France is not so great in January, where it should be lovely at this time of year. Well, thanks for your thoughts on the Eternal City, Dr. Flamin. And, and I'd like to say this is our last episode on Rome, but we know it won't be. So part two, part three to in some indefinite future. But uh, good bon chance to all the students who will be accompanying Dr. Flamin. And I will still have to see whether I might be able to pop down there for a day or two, Dr. Flamin. Good, but, um, good. Safe, safe travels. And thanks for sharing your time with us today. All right. Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members 
who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.